today's topic is manhood. And so this applies to everyone in the room, even if you're a woman, because you've got guys that are in your life. And as we begin to think about what it means to have masculinity of being a man, I mean, I'll just say this up front. From my perspective, it's kind of hard to be a man because it seems like like our world can't make up its mind on what a man is supposed to be. And so the world tells us men are buffoons. Men are ignorant and men are domineering and men are just uncouth. I have to look the word up. I don't know what it meant until I was like trying to find synonyms. That men, men are like Neanderthals or that they belittle women, and that all men care about is what beer and sports and sex and video games, and that's all guys care about. And if you want to see the typical image of what our world says a man is, just watch any sitcom, because by and large, sitcoms portray men in a very negative light, where the man is a fool, and it's his wife who's got it all together, and she's sophisticated and beautiful and smart. And it's guys that are just the problem. Or if you watch almost any stand-up comedy that talks about men or women, you're going to hear very disparaging remarks about men. And it can be very confusing. And even TV shows like Queer Eye, you know, it just adds to like this, this confusion that men have. Because on one hand, a world says, oh, your men are buffoons. And so manhood is just really looked down upon in our world. And so we're told, you know, you should stop being so manly. Be in touch with your feminine side, we're told. And then yet, if, if that happens, and then we're told, well, just be a man. And we're told, be strong. Man up, and, and then you, you just think to yourself, well, I, don't, I don't understand. Like, what am I supposed to be? And there is so much confusion, and I believe that that is a, a tactic of our enemy that is attacking a masculinity and creating so much confusion. And you have boys that are just looking and just wondering, what does it mean to be a man? And we need a fresh word from the Lord. We need a fresh vision from God that would let us have some clarity on what exactly it means to be a man and how a boy becomes a man. What is a man for? These kinds of questions are critical for our church in our age Today, Genesis 1:27, very beginning, it says, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. And then it says, male and female, he created them. So God does not create generic people. He doesn't do that. He creates male and female, and it's very distinct, and both Maleness and femaleness are designed to display the glory of God. It was God's idea. And God doesn't get confused, and there are no 
hiccups. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about things like the LGBTQ and all of that in a couple of weeks. So we'll, we'll address that too, this idea of transgender. And so we'll, 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 we'll tackle that as well in a couple of weeks in this series. This is very important for us to understand that God made is either male or female. And masculinity, as much as femininity, has a particular purpose in God's created order. God is revealing what he is like through his creation, and that includes you and me, that includes our gender. And so all of creation is designed with a particular purpose, and that is to reflect the character, the wisdom, the beauty, the glory of God. All of creation does that, which is why you see such diversity even in creation. You can go to the Rocky Mountains and see impressive, just rugged mountaintops. That displays God's power. And yet you can also go, I love in Texas, in the spring, and see just fields covered with flowers, soft and gentle and beautiful. And God created that too. And even a field of, of gentle, beautiful flowers displays the glory of God just as much as those rugged mountaintops do. There is diversity in who God is. And just like when you see lightning or you hear thunder and it, it catches you off guard, you're like, whoa, like you get startled by the sheer magnitude and the power of that, the thunder or the lightning. God is glorified just as much through the sweet chirping of the birds as the sun comes out. They're both his idea. And both of them reflect who God is. The heart of God. And so God's wonder and intricacy, his strength and his gentleness, his power and his beauty. All of it is displayed through what he has created. And that includes you as a man or a woman or a boy and a girl that one day will become a man or a woman. The masculine heart and the feminine heart both reflect the heart of God. This is what we're getting at. Today, we're going to talk to the men. We're talking about men. We'll talk about females next week. So the female heart and femininity and how women in their femaleness beautifully display the character and the glory and the heart of God. Today, we're going to speak to the men. Let's begin in the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. We're not going to read all of it. I'll mention a few passages to just kind of give you the overview but we're going to begin to find the essence of manhood. At our core, what does it mean to be a man? We see in Genesis 1 and 2, God entrusts Adam with three responsibilities. And as I was studying this text, it seems to me as though these three responsibilities capture the essence of manhood. And so we see the masculine heart through these three characteristics, these three responsibilities, and it shows what manhood is supposed to be by God's design. So number one, 
the heart of a man has, number one, the will of God to obey. So to be a man means that you have been entrusted the will of God to obey. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. In those verses, God tells Adam to enjoy all the trees of the garden. But he tells Adam, there's this one tree in the middle of the garden. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree alone you will not eat from. Now, lest we get confused, that tree was not evil. Because this is Genesis chapter 2, when God tells Adam, don't eat of this tree. The world was corrupted in Genesis chapter 3. And so in chapter 2, when God tells him, don't eat of that tree, the world was good and in integrity and pure and not corrupted. And so therefore, this tree was made good because God saw all he had made and behold, it was very good, which that would include the tree of the knowledge of good and evil it was not an evil tree. It was a good tree, but God was giving Adam boundaries because God is a good parent. A good parent gives their children boundaries. A good parent tells their child, it's bedtime. Believe it or not, kids, that's a good thing. A good parent tells you, no, you can't have that ice cream before dinner because it'll ruin your appetite. It'll make you feel sick to eat that with an empty stomach. A good parent doesn't let a nine-year-old drive their car. Cars are not evil. They're not evil. But driving a car when you aren't ready to handle it, that's a problem. And so as a parent, we have to have boundaries. And when our children are old enough and mature enough and are ready to handle more responsibility, then as a parent, what do we do? We give them more responsibility when they're ready to handle it. Adam, when he was created, was in integrity and, and pure, yes, but he still had a lot of growing to do. Adam was not God. He didn't have infinite knowledge. So let's not confuse the fact that he did not have sin with having infinite knowledge. He was not God. He was a human being. Adam had to grow to be a man. Adam had to walk with God. And before he had a woman, he had God to talk to him. Can you just imagine the conversations that God had with Adam? Can you just imagine God teaching Adam about the world and about who he is and his glory and Adam's purpose? It must have been just unbelievable with no sin to get in the way. Just beautiful harmony and intimacy and Adam enjoying his God and walking with him and learning about the world and learning how to be a man from his father. And God told him, no, you can't have of this tree. Now the text doesn't say it, but because the tree I know wasn't evil, here's my assumption. And I think I'm right. I'll let you decide for yourself. But I believe that when Adam was mature enough and ready to, God would have said, okay, son, it's time. 
now you're ready to handle this knowledge because having knowledge is responsibility. And Adam was not ready. He snatched and he took from the tree that wasn't his and he wasn't ready. And the result was, of course, sin. And the world is now corrupted. If Adam had waited on God and learned and grown and been able to handle that knowledge at some point, I believe we can say that God would have told him that he could have eaten of that tree because the tree was not evil. But nonetheless, here's a boundary. And God says, no, you are not to eat of this tree. He was given the will of God to obey. He needed to learn to depend on God and walk with God, to learn to obey God. I think what happens to men today when we think about the will of God and having to obey God, we tend to think of that as just duty, as just drudgery. And as though, as men, we might think to ourselves, you know, this whole obey God or submit to his will sounds like it's going to be no fun at all. Because as a man, we want to have fun and go conquer and go do things and have adventure and do things that are exciting. Like if this is part of the masculine heart and then we're told obey God's will. And I think a lot of guys think, yeah, I don't really want to obey God's will because that's going to, that's going to get in the way of the things that I really want to do. And so a lot of guys in my observation, they tend to think of God's will as an impediment, something that's just getting in the way of what they really want. But when God gave Adam his will to follow, you have to understand what this meant. He was giving Adam a transcendent cause, a great eternal cause, a great story to be a part of, a story that included adventure and risk and great enemies to defeat. It included something that was so much bigger than Adam and soul satisfying. And yet Adam did not want to obey the will of God. As men, we are created to yearn for something greater than ourselves. And if you don't think so, why do so many guys watch football? And why do they go to a stadium packed with 80,000 people, and then they scream at these guys wearing tights, running around hitting each other, and then when their team loses, they're depressed, and they go home, and they're grumpy. Or when, when the team wins, they say, yeah, we won. It's like, you didn't play? We? We? You were sitting on your couch, bro. Like, you had no say in the matter whatsoever. And yet, that masculine heart yearns to be a part of something bigger than himself. It's the way God made us. And ultimately, we were made to live for the kingdom of God, which is much bigger than us. And we were made for it. 
The problem is, is that men settle for substitutes. We settle for counterfeits instead of living for the greatest cause, the greatest story, for the greatest king of glory. We settle for far less. And so what you're seeing here with Adam is that he had the will of God to obey, and our hearts as men comes alive when we are submitting to the will of God. Being a man is submitting to the will of God. Like Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And our hearts come alive because we're a part of something much bigger than ourselves, the kingdom of God. And it's filled with purpose and excitement and adventure and fulfilling our destiny as men. But you also see the heart of man, second, has the work of God to do. So the will of God to obey, and second, the work of God to do, because God gave Adam work to do. Genesis 1, 12, and 13. It says that God made vegetation, plants, and trees on the third day. So when he created, on, on the third day of creation, he made all of the plant kingdom to come into existence. But here's the thing about all of the plants that were at that point made across the planet. The whole world was wild. It was not cultivated plants. There were no crops because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, it says no small plants of the field had yet sprung up. It says there was no man to work the ground. So before Adam existed to work the ground, all of the plants across the planet were just wild. Genesis 2, verses 7 and 8 says, And God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then it says that God then planted a garden. So there was no garden. There were no crops. It says that God planted the garden in Eden. And it says that no small plants of the field had sprung up yet, for there was no man. So then in verse 15, again, just Genesis 2, it says, God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And so he was given this work to do to cultivate the ground to plant crops. He was a farmer. Genesis 1.28 summarizes this, and it says that Adam had dominion, and he was called to subdue the earth. Now, as a farmer, you have to understand that Adam was definitely someone in the agricultural world, but he was not just a farmer. It was far more than that. Understand what Eden represented. Eden is where God dwelled. The word Eden means delight. And what made it delightful? That God was there. That God walked with Adam. It was the dwelling place of God. And so the place where God dwells is also called a sanctuary. And so what you see in Eden, it's a holy space. It is the sanctuary of God, the dwelling place of of God is where God was and where his people, Adam and then Eve, would worship 
him. And remember, outside of Eden, the world was wild. There were no cultivated plants. There were no fields that would produce fruits. It was just wild, except for in Eden. And so if you think about this, where God is ruling and he tells Adam to have dominion, and then he tells him to have dominion across the whole planet, Adam's work essentially was to spread the borders of Eden to cover the planet so that the whole planet would be covered with the knowledge of God and so that the whole world would know who God is and bow down in worship. It was about spreading the borders of the kingdom of God. This is what his call was when it says multiply and fill the world and have dominion. It was about worship. It was about God's kingdom being spread to cover the face of the earth so that all peoples would treasure God as the greatest treasure. He had eternal significant work to do, fill the earth and have dominion. And so what God essentially was telling Adam is, son, you have work to do. Go into the wild and expand the borders of my kingdom. Go create, go build. Have children who will have children who will have children, and fill the world, and teach them, lead humanity, and teach them about me, and how I love you, and how I made you, and your purpose is to enjoy me, and to worship me. And I'll be with you on this soul-satisfying, great adventure that I'm calling you to. So Adam's work was spectacular. If you actually Think about it, which is why this masculine heart that we have loves to work. Guys like working. And oftentimes, they like working more than like being at home. A lot of times, guys would rather be at work and work late and not even go home with their wife and their kids. I'm not saying that's good. That's a corruption. And yet, we see the reason why guys like to work is because God has made us a masculine heart was made with the work of God to do. The masculine heart loves risk and loves danger. Why do you think guys like, again, contact sports that are violent? Why do guys like ultimate fighting championships, you know, mixed martial arts and the octagon? Why do guys like to watch that or watch boxing? Why? And why is it that every hit video game has to do with killing other people, defeating the enemy. Like, this is, this is something that has just been hardwired into the masculine heart to want to work, to go build, and to create, and to leave your stamp on the world, whether it's to make music, or whether it's to write software, or whether it's to build buildings, or to build a business, or whatever it is. It's just... Part of being a man, God has made us this way, and it is good. 
It is not wrong. It's hard being a guy. It's to enjoy building and creating and exploring and expanding. But along with this call to go work for God, there was an evil that was already lurking outside of the garden. A demonic force led by Satan that had been cast down to earth that was already on the earth. And Adam needed to protect his house. He needed to be a man and guard the garden from the enemy, from the serpent that would come in. And when the serpent came in, Adam was supposed to crush the head of that serpent. But we know the story. He didn't do it. He failed to expand the borders of the kingdom. He failed to keep the sanctuary holy. He failed to defeat the enemy. He failed in his masculinity. He failed in his calling as a man. He failed. But nonetheless, our purpose still remains in our corruption that God has given us work to do. Number three, the masculine heart. So the male heart has a woman of God to love. So the will of God to obey, the work of God to do, and a woman of God to love. Genesis 2 describes how God created Eve and brought his daughter to Adam. And so being a man means respecting and caring for women. As men, we are called to protect and to treasure the women in our lives. And the ultimate example, of course, is your wife that you protect and and treasure and, and care for. But as men, we are called to honor and guard and love and respect all women. This is part of what it means to be a man, and that we love our wives for who they are, not for what they do for us, what we can get from them. It's part of the design of a man to have his heart deeply love his woman that God has given to him. So the male heart has the will of God to obey the work of God to do, and the woman of God to love. Genesis 3 is talking about records Adam's failure. He was irresponsible. He was checked out. He failed in all three areas. He did not protect his woman. He did not love her. Heck, he blamed her for his own failings as a man. How is that for masculine? How is that for a man of God? He blows it. He doesn't defeat the enemy. And then he blames his woman and it's her fault. So he failed in that area. He failed in his work to do. He failed in submitting to the will of God. Adam represents manhood. But you know what? So does Jesus. I want to read to you out of 1 Corinthians, where it describes both Adam and Jesus. 1 Corinthians will be in chapter 15. I want to read to you one paragraph that shows how both Adam and Jesus represent Manhood. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49, 45 through 49. 
Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are we who are of the dust, as is the man of heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so Adam is described, the first Adam, the original Adam. He says, natural man, he says, a man of dust. And so Adam represents corrupted manhood, what we see today, by and large. That's Adam. All of us are born into Adam. But Jesus, described as the last Adam, is called spiritual man. It says, man of heaven. And he represents authentic manhood as God designed it. And so restored, renewed manhood that is possible through Christ. And so Adam represents manhood based on our human reason, on on the world. Jesus represents manhood that's based upon God's revelation. Adam represents manhood that takes from people. Jesus represents manhood that gives. That's why he says he's a life-giving in verse 45. Every one of us is born into Adam. We're born into this sinful humanity, corrupted. And so that's why you see manhood that fails to reflect the character of God. It says we have borne the image of the man of dust. And so left to ourselves, our manhood does not reflect the glory of God. It reflects the image of Adam. And we see the effects all over us. We see manhood that distorts the glory of God. We see men that are lazy and that do not love their wives. Men that are left to themselves going to check out from their responsibility as a spiritual leader in their home that aren't going to lead or be passive. And so what we see, all all these examples of, of unhealthy manhood is because we have inherited our father Adam's sinful nature, his manhood. And so we, like Adam, tend to ignore our social and relational and spiritual responsibilities. Like Adam, leaving his wife to just figure it out when he was out to lunch. That is corrupted manhood. But Jesus came in order to pay for our sins and to take away our shame, the power of the Spirit, to make us new. So based upon the gospel, the work of Jesus, through his Spirit, what happens now is it says that we can now bear the image of the man of heaven. We can have a new manhood. We can be made new and reclaim authentic manhood, just like Jesus. Because Jesus had the will of God to obey, and what did he do? He obeyed the will of God. Jesus had the work of God to do, and what did he do? He fulfilled the work God gave him. He defeated the enemy. He established the kingdom of God. Everything that Adam failed, Jesus, the second Adam, succeeded. 
and the woman of God to love? Oh, man. Look around the room. The bride. The church. Jesus loves his woman. He's committed to his bride. And he sacrificially leads her, you and me. Jesus represents holy, authentic manhood. And through his power and through his gospel, we can be the men that he's calling us to be, the men that our children need us to be. If you have little girls, then they need to see true manhood so that way they can grow up and know who to look for in a husband. And if you have little boys, then they need to see what it looks to be a man of God so that they can grow up and know how to be men. Men don't just happen randomly. Men are made and they're taught by other men. And when you see societies that are fatherless, and it breaks my heart, you see so many inner cities. And it's just, it's painful to see whole generation that's just fatherless. We need to be the fathers that God has called us to be. And if there are others, even in this faith family, that don't have fathers then we men need to step in that gap and be those father figures that the children in this church need. I want to read to you a text. It's not long. And it just summarizes masculinity. Same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. So 1 Corinthians 16, 13 and 14. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. That is a summary of masculinity. I'll be very brief, but we'll discuss this in our home groups later on this week. This describes five characteristics of authentic manhood. It says, be watchful. So God calls men to be vigilant, to be watchful, to pay attention, to be engaged as fathers. Don't be checked out emotionally, relationally, or spiritually. Your family needs you as a man to be watchful. Next, it says, stand firm in the faith. So as a man of God, you're to recognize that you are in a battle. We are not On the golf course, it's a battlefield. And we have to understand that there is an enemy and he's like a lion prowling, seeking whom to devour. And we need to stand firm in the faith and walk in the spirit and be in the word and lead our families in the faith. And he says, act like men. You're like, what does that mean? How do I act like a man? You look to Jesus. There you see authentic manhood. He says, act like men. He says, be strong. Fourth characteristic, as a man, you have been made to be strong. We cannot have passive men. Renewal church cannot accomplish her calling of extending God's renewal to Bill County and the world with passive men. We won't get there. 
And your families won't be who God wants your family to be if we don't have strong men. You can't be passive. You have to be bold and take a risk. Be strong. A man accepts responsibility, rejects passivity, and leads bravely. That's what we see here. Be strong. But then the last one is important. Number five, he says, let all that you do be done in love. Oh, that's just beautiful. He says, stand firm, be strong, but be gentle, be kind, be loving. Being a man, it's being loving and being tender, just like Jesus. He could take out his whip and clean house in the temple, strong, manly, but then with the children, he was gentle and said, here, children, come to me. With the broken, he was gentle. With the women, he was gentle and kind. This is manhood. This is what we see. Fathers, teach your boys to be men. To be men of God. And you can be a man because Jesus has already made a way. On the cross, he has made it possible. I think what happens to us as men is we get afraid. We get afraid that our manhood just isn't enough, and I'm I'm not going to be man enough, or if I take that risk, or if I try to lead, or I might fail. I might not be enough. And sometimes we're wounded. But it takes a man to acknowledge that he's hurt and that he needs help and that he needs Jesus who will depend on the power of God to heal him, to empower him, and to make you to be the man that God wants you to be. So let's stop denying our humanity and our created purpose. Let us rise up and men and be the men of God is calling us to be, pursuing this soul-satisfying adventure. And women, encourage the men in your life. Encourage them. May we see a church full of men of God.